Hey everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, powered by Dimers.com. I'm Matt Landis, and with the sports world bustling right now, this episode features a catch-all conversation with one of the sharper minds out there when it comes to sports betting and legalization, and that would be friend of the pod, Mike Roselli. We touch on the Masters, the NFL Draft, March Madness, Major League Baseball, and a couple of head-scratching moves by Illinois and New York when it comes to legalization, and Mike's the ideal guest for this conversation because he's the Chief Compliance and Legal Officer at PlayUp US, a premium betting entertainment and technology group, and he's also the host of his own show that shares great insights on sports betting and legalization, the Doggy Juice Podcast. Before we get to the conversation, I'd appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be incredibly helpful so that more people can find the show. And if you're looking for some betting edges for your portfolio this weekend, go ahead and check out Dimers.com, where the team has recently posted a Masters preview that I'll link to in the show notes. Quick tip, they're showing value on a bit of a long shot that Mike also likes. We'll touch on that at the end of the interview. And without further ado, let's get to the beginning of the interview with this week's guest, Mike Roselli. Mike, welcome back to Props and Hops. Your last appearance on the show came during the lead-up to the Super Bowl. Congrats on those Bucks futures. How was your Super Bowl viewing experience, and how have you been since then? Oh, great to be back, Matt. Thank you so much. I'm honored, as always, to come on the Props and Hops podcast and really impressed with what you've done with the podcast, even in the interim period since I've been on here. But uh, the Super Bowl was a fun viewing experience for me. I was actually out. I was in Asheville, North Carolina, actually, like a, a pretty remote area about 20, 30 minutes south of it. And my fiance and I just loaded up on some local beers and uh, some local chicken. And we just went to town, watched those. It wasn't even a, a close game at all. I mean, it was, it didn't even have to sweat those futures. And it was one of those spots where I did not even, I didn't hedge. I, I was, I had some, I was fortunate enough to have some bucks, 50 to ones. And I liked the, the plus three and a half. So I wasn't going to give any equity back to the books. I decided to just treat it as its own game and, and bet the bucks on the money line and the spread. And it all worked out. Tom Brady. So cheers to him. Yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> cheers to not hedging when you didn't have an edge. Glad it worked out for you there. And on that note, first things first, before we dive into the Masters, what are you drinking tonight? So I'm drinking, uh, I'm coming to you live from Southwest Florida right now. So I'm drinking a uh, Cigar City Brewing Florida Cracker, aptly named, uh, given my location right now. It's a Belgian style white ale brewed with coriander and orange peel. It's really, really good. Nice. Yeah, we're in a similar lane tonight. I'm working on Green Cheek Beer, B-I-E-R. It's their Hella-style lager. I like to think of it as the closest you can get to Oktoberfest without flying halfway around the world. It's a super crushable lager, a little bready, but otherwise just light and crisp, really easy drinker. So I think we've got uh, some good local beers going from coast to coast tonight. And on that note, let me crack this open. I've already cracked my. <laughs> cheers. cheers. Got that start. I'll, I'll catch up. You're three hours ahead, so that's fair. That's true. All right. So right. working on some beers. Good, good life since the Super Bowl. Glad to hear it. And we've got a lot to look forward to in the sports world right now. I'd like to start with a Masters preview. And before we dive into this tournament, some of the specific golfers, love to touch on just your general handicapping process when it comes to golf. How much do you look at things like recent form, course history, and any other factors that generally weigh into your equation? 
No, that great question. And I'll preface this by saying that like golf, uh, to, to echo what, what Gil Alexander over at VEASAN, a, a numbers game, has said for a few years now, it's the, the sport that that's most ripe for a, a sports betting revolution, I think is the wording he uses. But um, I personally, if I had to choose one sport like moving forward that uh, to only bet, I mean, college basketball is my bread and butter. I love basketball and football. You'll never take that away from me, but it would be golf. I think that golf is just an exciting sport, especially with all the new numbers out there and the new data available. And you're kind of seeing this play out. It really lends itself for, for, for betting and and you're seeing it even be incorporated into broadcasts now. So um, I'll preface it with that because golf is, is an interest, a specific interest in mind when it comes to handicapping. And I've been experimenting the past couple of years with my own handicapping process and and going through the numbers and trying to extract data that would be, that would help, um, paint a picture that's predictive, you know, for any given tournament moving forward. But when it comes to my you know, actual analysis, I'm, I, I do dive into a lot of strokes gain data uh, just because that's a lot of that's really new and, and, um, and it's, it can help offer insight, especially when you're able to uh, figure out which, you know, what, what stats are more important um, with regards to a certain course. So like obviously the masters in Augusta, it's a, it's a second shot course. Everybody knows that. And and you can back golfers who are not going to be um, as accurate off the tee, you know, length off the tee matters for sure. And, and accuracy, while it still matters, you can make up for it um, at Augusta. So really understanding the course itself and then looking at data that's more valuable uh, that fits that specific course is, is where I, First to look, but in terms of my actual betting on each event, what I what I like to do is is find golfers. Um, and I always call them my my horses for that tournament. Find golfers that that have value on the betting boards, and then I'll you know I'll look to attack them less so in, in futures markets because I know you know this very well. In, in futures markets, in any futures market, the household is is pretty prohibitive to find uh, value. But you know usually if I'm finding someone out. Uh, that I, I think has value in the futures markets, I'll attack them outrights, and then I'll I'll kind of uh, disperse the money out into top fives, top tens, top twenty, even top forty, and of course shopping for the best price in in that process because you're only as good as the best prices you can find. So um, that'll probably be about ten to twenty percent of my of my I guess allotment of my uh, bankroll for that tournament, and then the remaining eighty percent will be in matchups because that's where you really find the edges is tournament matchups, even round by round matchups. And, and with so many more betting outs available to us, like legal betting outs here in the United States, it's just price shopping for this stuff. I mean, you can even go so far as to just, I, mean, I know back in, in Illinois, when I was in Chicago betting last summer on these tournaments, the Camby books, you could find wide discrepancies on round by round matchups just by comparing them to to uh, offshore like Pinnacle and Chris, the lines that they're offering on a round by round basis. And you're, it's just as simple as finding a 30 or 40 cent uh, discrepancy on the price being offered by the candy books and just auto firing really that simple. And so it's a bit nuanced, but I, I really like to focus in on matchups and, and finding uh, specific horses for the course. I like to, to call it uh, to back on that certain week. Yeah. And on the note of looking at specific matchups for the course, uh, I like that line horses for the course. When we're talking about the masters, usually of course it's played every 12 months, but we last saw the tournament five months ago. And the course is expected to be more firm and bouncy this time around in April with less margin for error than we saw in November. So when you're looking at matchups, does that angle make you tempted to favor anybody versus what we might have seen last in November at the same course? Well, it's interesting that we're talking about the Masters because it's different than any other tournament in the sense that course history matters more here than any other PGA Tour event. And it's, it's not even close. 
Um, so it, if there's one event where you want to use past performance at this course, it's obviously it's played at the same event every single year at Augusta National. If there's ever an event where you want to use that as uh, predictive for the future, it's it's this one and the Masters. And obviously we had our outlier event last November with the, you know, the greens were so, the, we also had some rain, I know, at the start of the week uh, where the, the greens were a lot softer. Um, and so it really, it set up a situation where I think it's easy to, overreact maybe to what we saw last November. I still think it, it offers predictive value. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm pretty neutral in that regard. I think that, I, I mean, I'm counting it, the November stats from last year, but I'm not going to overreact to it, especially from a, a recency standpoint. I think if anything, you know, some of those debutants that we had last November, maybe they've you know, had enough, not enough time has passed for them to maybe realize how difficult this course is and the, and it's going to come right up on them uh, pretty quickly here. So it's, and then another example is, you know, um, Justin Thomas. I know he's historically never putted well at this event, but he putted a lot better this past time around. Um, is that going to be predictive for this time around? I mean, obviously you can point to, to some of what happened last November as being a cause for that. But but as a whole, I'm kind of treating it neutrally, I guess. I'm not going to overreact to what I saw in November, but I am not going to throw those stats away either. Got it. Yeah, that sounds like a fair approach, not dismissing it, but not giving it too much weight. And you touched on Justin Thomas. I'd also like to touch on a few of the other favorites at the top of the betting boards right now. And these are for outrights, but I think it's directionally informative for, you know, matchups, top fives, top tens, and so on. Dustin Johnson, the favorite to win it again. He's at plus 835 I'm seeing right now. And then there's a cluster of guys, Bryson DeChambeau, John Rahm, 10 to 1, Justin Thomas, 11 to 1, Spieth, Jordan Spieth also getting some steam after winning last week at the Valero Texas Open. He's now less than 12 to 1. So are there any bets you're looking to make involving these five? Or are you looking a little bit farther down the board when it comes to any matchups or props for the Masters this weekend? No, I mean, the Masters is an interesting tournament where I, I want to say I heard earlier today somewhere that all 11 of the past 11 winners have been at odds of 40 to one or less. It's really a more of a top heavy uh, event where you're not going to really see those long shots come through. Of course they do come, you know, from time to time, of course, but and there's no just, just a one size fits all rule to, to apply, but, but I don't look too far down the board. It's, it is a bit of a chalkier tournament. So from those names that you named, there's one that sticks out like a sore thumb to me. And I've bet him the past few masters and that's John Rahm. And, and you could find him at, I think, 12 to 1 is the best I saw before we started recording here. Obviously, there's the, the distractions from last week with his uh, giving birth to a, to his son. Or sorry, obviously, he didn't give birth himself to his son. <laughs> <laughs> he would have quite the uh, comeback to, to come back that fast, especially after uh, beating science and, and everything that's normal. But no, it's, um, there's no doubt like there was distractions from the, the birth of your newborn son. But I think enough time might have passed. You know, I think it. By the time he tees off for the first time on Thursday, it's going to be, what, five or six days since the birth of his son. If anything, he was able to provide him with an opportunity to to recharge his mindset. You know, I don't think he's been – he's had too many distractions besides, you know, those initial phone calls and, and being around his, his wife and the newborn. But maybe it's good for his psyche. And I usually don't like to read too much into that stuff anyway. And that could be why maybe you know, at 12 to 1, you're not going to find – it's not the best value ever on, on John Rahm, but I still think from that list, he's the clear cut guy. I, I think he should be the favorite in this tournament uh, with all respect to DJ and everybody else up there. John, John Rahm just, he has a, a different gear he could tap into. And statistically, I mean, when you, when you look at a tournament where year over year correlation and strokes gained um, at the masters, it's, it's just completely 
off the charts when you compare it to other tournaments that he's, he's shown that he's able to handle this course, obviously putting it together for four straight rounds is a whole different story, uh, but he has everything you would want in the golfer that can, that can uh, bring this one home and, and it'll be a good story too. So, so Ram would be my pick and I, I have bet Ram. Got it. And you mentioned the outrights market tough to find value, but are there specific matchups or again, the top five, top 10 type 20 type of, Top five, top ten, top twenty type of bets. Excuse me, that's a bit of a tongue twister. Or um, any any props that you found maybe a little bit more value getting at somebody who you really like, one of your horses for this course, so to speak. Yeah, I, so I haven't. Um, I still haven't bet like all my matchups and gone through everything. But you know, usually it's it's way stronger when I find a guy I'm looking to fade, of course, and when uh, one of the guys, one of my horses for the course, is matched up against them. Um, one that comes to mind would be you know. And, and not to go against Phil Mickelson, obviously he has the wonderful history there, but usually at this tournament, you get a lot more public money on a, on a guy like Phil Mickelson and you could find some value open up in other spots. So like one guy I was looking at before we started, I saw um, at least one offshore was offering minus 127 on Ian Poulter at uh, against Phil Mickelson's in, in a full tournament prop. So I thought that stuck out. Um, and, you know, just, and, and that's not to say I'm going to blindly fade Phil Mickelson in the Masters ever, and, and especially given a specific matchup, but that one did stick out to me. Um, and other than that, you know, when I see my horses that I'm looking to bet and and when they're in a matchup, I'm usually looking to play them in, in that matchup unless I have a, a come to a good reason to uh, to not engage in that matchup. You know, if, if I'm neutral on the golfer they're matched up against, it stands to reason still that uh, that there's value on I'm betting on the, on the same guy I'm looking to target him and all the other markets. Yeah. Makes sense. Well, it sounds like there's a lot to look forward to this weekend at Augusta, a nice portfolio coming together for you. And not too long after that, even more to look forward to with the NFL draft. And I know that things have been moving fast and furious in your world for the past couple of months. So we don't need to get too deep on it right now. I'll have another guest come in to do a real deep dive a little bit closer to the draft, but in general, at this point in the process, how do you consider putting together your NFL draft portfolio? The NFL draft, I mean, it's such an interesting betting event uh, that's gaining so much popularity now. And with popularity, it means more you know, liquidity. There's more people betting into these markets, but it's so unique. And I know you're going to dive into this as the draft approaches, but um, it, it's it's unique in that it's all information-based. You know, we don't have to watch any games play out. Um, so from that sense, and with so many more you know, legal books available now and so many more outs available to us betters, you could see it, it doesn't hurt to, to chase steam. And I usually am not, I would never advocate for steam chasing in any market, but you know, if it's a situation where, you know, some, some market, you know, a guy to go in the fifth pick or whatever, if it's a minus 150 and you're seeing it's steam, especially closer to the actual event itself and it's up to minus 300 and you're seeing steam coming in other places, usually it's because someone knows something and that's, a situation where I, you know, normally if it's a if it's a game and I can't get the best of the number, I just stay away. Um, but in a, in a situation with the NFL draft when it's information based, I'm not as afraid to chase that steam. So that's kind of something that I always tell people in that type of market that that moves so quickly based off information. There's certainly opportunities to catch books sleeping at the wheel, but I think it's also important to remember that this stuff is just based off information that we know, and nothing's a sure thing in this business. So people should always bet accordingly. Yeah. Not a big surprise to hear you give that really thoughtful overview. Our approaches are fairly similar. I would say that in general, I approach the draft with the idea of looking to bet early and late with most of April being a bit of a lull. 
Um, mm -hmm. To your point, when there's good information out there, you got to act fast. And when it comes to betting early, the ship has sailed this year, but I think it's worth keeping in mind for future years. I think of a guy like Zach Wilson, where in early March, I bet him to go second overall for less than two to one. And that was thanks to a good tip from Drew Dinsick on the Deep Dive podcast. He is really well connected with a lot of this good info. Fortunately, he shared that tip on Wilson. And after betting that at less than two to one, it, it settled ultimately at about minus a thousand. And now it's off the board as far as I'm seeing. So sometimes if you can act early, if you can act quickly on good info, you can put yourself in a good position. Again, it's not a guarantee that the Jets are going to pick him at two. Crazier things have happened. But if you laid somewhere in the range of minus 190 for a bet that's gone up to minus 1,000 or come off the board altogether, then that's a pretty good feeling to have. And then later on in the draft process, I think it can be valuable to pay attention to the best mock drafts you can find. And I think of a guy like Daniel Jeremiah as probably being the best in the business. He usually releases his final one, I believe it's the day before the draft. And that can be really informative for player over under props or positions over under to go in the first round, things like that. Mm -hmm. Especially a year like this with no combine. I've heard Daniel Jeremiah say that he's had more movement on his draft board coming later in the process than any year he can remember. And I think the same goes for a lot of teams because what other info are they getting without the combine this year? So overall, it's that balance of acting fast early on. If we get good info from respected sources like Wilson, that, that might move really quickly. And later on, the sharper mock drafts will influence the market because it's not like the bookmakers are necessarily any more connected than Daniel Jeremiah. Right. I know I, I always tell people too, if there's, you should obviously be doing this for anything you're betting, but, but shopping around for the best price, because books especially are going to balance their liability, um, on this stuff that's information based where that, you know, it's, it's hard to take a stand, you know, like some books, you know, I think it's a popular misnomer that people think that that books are just trying to balance their action all the time. It's not necessarily the case at all. Uh, books takes stands all the time on, on uh, sporting events and games. But when it comes to this, when it's information based and you don't want to be a book caught flat footed here because someone knows something. And if, if you're slow to react and slow to move your line, you can get picked off pretty bad, but at the same time as betters, that's just, music to our ears at times because we could take advantage of this and really shop around and find the best price and put ourselves in the best position to succeed. Yeah. I love that you preach shopping around constantly. It's easy to forget, but that is ultimately probably the number one factor between winning and losing in the long run, getting the best number you can. And on that note, I know we've got a lot to look forward to with the masters and the NFL draft coming up. But I also think we'd be remiss not to look back at a couple bigger moments in sports recently, starting with March Madness. And on the note of shopping around and taking advantage of different numbers you can get from different books, I loved an example you gave last week on the value of taking UCLA to win its region in a Moneyline rollover as opposed to a futures bet. And um, I'm, I'm not sure that you actually did this. A lot of people probably didn't. It seemed like quite the long shot. But just to paint the picture of, you know, with the Masters, we're talking about some outrights, but you can really find value by attacking the board in a different way. So if you could give a brief explainer on the value of UCLA and a Moneyline rollover versus a futures bet to win their region, I think that would be super helpful here. Yes, no, absolutely. And this is something I, I preached on, on my own podcast a few times, and especially before, you know, any any tournament or any, you know, even it applies to the NFL before the playoffs when when the casual better is looking to to get involved with a future play. And, and, and I never hate on someone for wanting to make a future play, you know, go to Vegas and it's before the season starts and you want to throw some money down on your team. But if, you know, if it's, if it's a smaller time frame and it's a few weeks long or if the events 
over the course of a weekend, or in the case of March Madness, if it's three weeks, you are almost always better off um, doing a money line rollover or a mechanical parlay, some people call it. And UCLA is the perfect example here. And 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 just to give credit where credit's due, Brad Powers on Twitter, he uh, I think Brad Powers Seven is his his uh, Twitter handle. He he spelled this out, and I, I gave the the breakdown in my podcast last week. But essentially on you you could have had UCLA at 60 to one to win the East region. I think it was the East region uh, before the tournament started. And you have to also keep in mind that that included the playing game, but that was factored into the 60 to one price. But if you instead took, you know, if you put a hundred bucks down on UCLA, obviously it's a nice payout at 60 to one. But if you took that same hundred dollars and did a money line rollover, just bet UCLA on the money line for every single game and pulled your winnings from that, from each game, including your original stake, you would have came out to ninety to one, a ninety to one payout, mm. and that's including Abilene Christian, a game where they were, I think they're minus two sixty on the money line in that game. So if Abilene Christian wasn't even involved, and if the you know they're playing the chalk in that game, the payout would have been a lot higher. And that's just that specific example. That's just UCLA, and it's it, you know it's difficult when you think about it as a better. It's like oh, that's you know I have to continually roll it over. That's more work for me, but you're shortchanging yourself if you're betting the futures markets almost always because you're going to get a lot, lot bigger of a payout by doing that money line rollover. And the best part about it is you don't need UCLA to win the whole thing or get there, you know, win, make it to the final four to get that payout. When you do a money line rollover, if you don't like the spread or you don't like it anymore, you want to keep your winnings, you're free to do so. You don't need that event to happen in order to cash your ticket. So it's just a better overall uh, strategy for betters in almost all circumstances. Yeah, I think it's great to acknowledge the fact that getting that extra value can require a little bit more work, but that element of the ripcord I think is so powerful because if USC advances to the Sweet 16 or Elite Eight and suddenly there's an injury or there's a matchup that you really don't like anymore, to your point, you're not locked into that futures ticket and you can take a payout that would have been less than them winning their region, but you're not locked in the same way that you would be on a future. So that flexibility, you know, there's there can be more work involved but that flexibility can also be a total game changer. So I love that angle. And one thing I wanted to run by you, because you definitely know college basketball handicapping better than I do. Something I played around with a little bit during the tournament, which was fun because my alma mater, USC, made a bit of a run this time around. (laughs) I, I looked at their poor free throw shooting and the fact that a lot of better coaches were out there. And I looked at them in the first half against the spread to avoid those end games where if it's tight down to the wire, I don't want to bank on them making free throws or Andy Enfield out coaching, you know, a superior guy on the other side. So USC in the first half in the tournament went three and one very small sample, but I, I did see some logic there. Again, I don't want to say, okay, it went 75% in a sample size of four. So let's put the stamp of approval on it. It's always good to go. (laughs) But when there are angles like this, when it comes to something like free throw shooting or coaching, do you think the first half spread that books will post is taking that into account or are they just more or less going off of the chart as David Molinsky would have called it based on the full game number? I think that's more so with spreads to answer your question. You know, spreads, it's just, I think usually just take half, you know, if this, if it's a full game five, first half's two and a half for totals, obviously it's a bit different because you'll see a total, you know, my, my rule of thumb is the first half total always be about 10 points less than the, the second half. Or I guess if you extrapolate it out, it'll be, you know, a lot of people think, oh, it should be half of the full game total, but so it accounts for what you're describing. You know, those, those end game shenanigans to use the the term, and I can't tell you how many bets I've lost where, especially on the total, 
um, you know, where I'm 15 points clear of the under, and then you just get that scrambling at the end, especially with college kids who, you know, there's no rhyme or reason sometimes to what they're doing. You can't get into the properly get into the head of a college kid who's looking to foul down by nine points with four seconds left, you know? Um, but so the, the totals account for that. You'll see a lower total in the first half, but sometimes not enough. And it's in a situation where you described, you know, with USC, maybe not hitting their free throws down the stretch. I think that's not always accounted for, especially on the, uh, the full game line. Usually it's the books just go to the chart, like you said, and that's where you can find those nice edges, especially when you could find a team that's you know, not as good at free throw shooting or, if you have reason to believe maybe they won't be fouling down by seven uh, with you know five seconds left in the game, you know maybe they played a, a really long past few days and and you think that they're going to just hang up the towel a little bit easier. I know uh, Florida State there was a game a few years ago where they were down by four mm-hmm. with like enough time left and Leonard Hamilton decided not to foul in the situation. It just made no sense, you know. So it's it's hard to handicap that stuff sometimes, but oftentimes the books don't price that in; they just go to the chart. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, that was a game FSU played against Michigan in the Final Four. I want to say 2018. We can fact check afterward, but I, it I might remember. Have been a yeah, yeah, it was. I think that's what it was. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. but I, I remember that pretty clearly as soon as you bring it up. And there often are those end game shenanigans. So yeah, this was a four game sample size, and I don't know if there are going to be teams that fit the model like this moving forward, where they're not great at free throw shooting, maybe not the best coached, but they have the athleticism to maybe play better in the first half. But if there's an angle like that next season, I'll try to play around with it a little bit more because yeah, small sample size, but good results. And I think there might be some underlying logic when we're looking at first half against the spread to your point, the total, not so much, but the spread could have an edge in play. And while we're talking about March madness, I know there are the betting angles against, you know, spreads totals, but I'd also like to touch on brackets because that's how so many people get involved in this tournament and really quickly, how would you do with brackets this year? I know you're an Iowa grad and your fiance has her close ties to her alma mater, mm-hmm. Illinois. So that might've been tough, but how did that end up working out for you? So I, I kid you not, we were going to win all of our pools. Last, not all of them. I think we, and I didn't pick Iowa to win any pools or Illinois, but we were going to win all of our pools last night if Gonzaga won, including one that was 122 people. Uh, so some pretty nice payouts. Um so we were disappointed by the result, of course, and eating the chalk. I mean, we picked um, Gonzaga. I mean, on the Doggy Juice podcast, I did uh, kind of – I gave my final four, and Houston was – I thought it was a great angle to take Houston in that bracket. Obviously, didn't foresee Illinois losing to Loyola like they did, but at the same time, that was – the committee really gave them a tough draw, Loyola and Illinois, with that second-round matchup. But I figured that, that going Houston there was a good way to – especially in bigger pools when you want to go a little bit more contrarian. Uh, so I, I went with Houston on a lot of our brackets. Um, Baylor and Gonzaga was the championship game that we picked in those brackets, Gonzaga winning. Uh, but I did, I did uh, introduce my fiance to the concept of hedging in this, in this scenario. So we were able to um, successfully hedge last night by t- obviously recording this on Tuesday, but um, we did hedge with some Baylor plus five and, and some plus plus one seventy money line to lock in a bit of that profit. I, I kind of told her we have, you know, X amount of money right now riding on this one game. And I was like, you know, we're about to furnish a new apartment in Chicago soon. I was like, you know, with that in mind, do you want this much potential win riding on one result of this game that you're not going to really care about watching? And then once I explained that to her, we, we brought down the amount uh, that we, you know, gave away some of that equity in the process, but, you know, just kind of explaining to her that we had this much potential win riding on one result was able to to scale that back and, and keep a, a modest amount at risk. So we definitely would have came out better if Gonzaga 
won that game. But just as a basketball fan, I was just happy to see that game. It wasn't as close as we would have, of course, liked to have seen, but but the better team won. Um, although I would still have Gonzaga favored over Baylor if they did a rematch. I mean, everyone's quick to overreact, but Jalen Suggs, two fouls early on like that. That's not going to happen every time if they play that game a hundred times. So I think it's important to real to not overreact to to any one result, even when Baylor clearly dominated that game. Yeah, I'm glad the hedge worked out for you guys. And was the thought process partially? I know that the two rules of hedging essentially are if it's life changing <laughs> money, or if you see an edge with that hedging side as having standalone value. Baylor plus five definitely seems to have had standalone value because they they took on some money as. Tiboff got closer. And also you mentioned you're about to furnish a new spot in Chicago. So how much of it was that emotional comfort and how much of it was actually seeing the edge with Baylor when the line was five? Yeah, it was, it was a mixture of both in that one. I mean, I definitely, I was not going to be laying it with Gonzaga and I, you know, on, on the look ahead, I mean, Baylor was catching six, uh, the final four Saturday before the games were played. So you could have even got uh, six with a little extra vig on Baylor. Um, but yeah, it was a little bit of both there. I mean, I, I definitely wasn't going to be laying the points with Gonzaga in that game. I thought the line was close to right, a pinch of value on Baylor, which is what helped kind of push us in that direction. But yeah, it was more or less me explaining to my fiance, or because we we split all of our pools, and uh, and once we had that joint interest, and I kind of explained to her how much was riding uh, in terms of potential win on that one result. Uh, that's she she helped push us push us that way as well. Nice, yeah, good team effort. Uh, pretty soon, once you two are able to tie the knot, that money is all pretty much going to go into the same pool anyway. So, well, no, nice I told him we, we're rolling it over into Masters. I mean, it's all going to John Rahm and, uh, and Xander Schauffele, a little bit of Matsuyama this week, too. So, so I, I'm teaching her that she, it's all bankroll. You know, we're not going to be totally taking that out to furnish the apartment. You know, we got to, of course, pay it forward. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I meant, I meant that once you two are, are married, then it, it doesn't really matter so much whether it's your bet or hers. It's kind of both of yeah. yours all the time in a sense, in a sense, but yeah, yeah. it's good that the hedging, the hedging uh, opportunity with Baylor did open up some more bankroll to play with for the masters. So well played there. And, and yeah, I would say from a bracket standpoint, the tournament was nice positive reinforcement to zig where others zag quite literally when Gonzaga <laughs> is the consensus favorite as heavily as they were. Fortunately, the team that I ended up zigging with the most was Baylor. And I think part of it was an angle that I would have loved to see David Molenski write about or speak about getting time to practice defense. I really think that that was huge for them after they had a COVID outbreak and paused for, I believe, a few weeks during the season. And even when they came back, they didn't look great heading into the tournament. I didn't think their recent stats were indicative of future performance. It draws some parallels in my mind to something Jonathan Von Tobel brought up when I had him on during the NBA All-Star break. Right before then, the Mavs had gone on a mini run because there was that crazy storm in Texas, and they had some games get postponed, and they got some practice time for the first time in a while, and their defense you know, was notably, noticeably better when they initially returned. Also, even having Ed Bang on a couple weeks ago, he talked about conditioning for Baylor, just giving them the time to get it back because he wasn't even as concerned about their effort as much as their physical ability, not knowing who had COVID or how bad it was, but mm -hmm. just physically being able to perform at that level. And we saw last night, they certainly brought their A game and definitely peaked at the right time. So it was nice to have, uh, I think I, I entered five pools and won a couple of them with Baylor. And that included my biggest pool. I mean, you played a, a really big one where you were sitting pretty with Gonzaga, but the biggest one I played had 32 brackets. So I definitely stick to smaller right. pools, trying to make sure that the edges don't get diluted too much by variance. And in that 32 bracket pool, I was one of three brackets with Baylor. So the pool consensus on Baylor, less than 
the futures price before the tournament tipped off had Baylor in the range of five to one, which is about 20%, not to mention the VIG. So Baylor's true probability was probably greater than 20%. Basically not going to get too into the weeds on the math here, but it felt good to see a team with more than twice the likelihood of winning according to the odds as what the pool's consensus implied. Once the tournament tips off, we have so little control over everything else, but trying to kind of gauge how people feel about each team and just picking somebody who has a realistic shot to win, who's not going to get picked by everybody to the point that their true odds are, you know, wiped out by the pool's consensus. Um, yeah. that, that team was Baylor this year. A couple of years ago, it was Virginia. And yeah. I also want to acknowledge you know, this is not a bragging session. I'm trying to speak to the process no, here. It's not every year you um, win a bowl. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it. a lot of it does take getting lucky, even when you can put yourself in that spot, because even at that point, 80% of the time, Baylor still doesn't win this tournament. And I'm not here talking about how I'm so smart. I won two pools with Baylor, guys. Um, <laughs> they still had to, you know, they still had to beat, I had to beat two other brackets in that pool where Baylor won. And there was some variance in play there. Um, so there's a lot of good fortune involved, but I think winning any pool takes a degree of luck. Again, good call on your end, putting Houston in the final four, but the name of the game is ultimately stacking small edges in your favor. And it's really fun when it works out. Most of the time it, it probably won't, but it's nice to see that you were in such a good spot with Gonzaga. You still identified an edge with Baylor where you could take something away from this and, you know, kind of come out in the black. And then when Baylor ended up coming through last night. It it was great. I was kind of sitting on pins and needles waiting for Gonzaga's run and couldn't really believe it never came. Yeah, no, and congrats to you. That's an awesome score. And it's, you know, it's, it, you have to remind yourself too. It's like when you win these 32 person pools, it's like, you know, you should really in theory only expect to win every 32 years, you know, but when you can reel it off like that and, and uh, just put yourself in a great spot, you definitely did some plus EV bracketing there. Um, no doubt about it. Because Baylor, I mean, you you took advantage of, the public sentiment could not have been higher on Illinois to start the tournament, you know, with you know that, that run they had in the big 10 tournament. And then obviously Gonzaga was, was, I mean, the majority of people's picks, including my own to win the whole thing. So that's a great way of identifying the value side. Uh, that was obviously, I mean, neck and neck, even if you go back at the start of the season, they were, there wasn't much separation at all. You know, even at Ken Palm, I think Baylor was at the top of Ken Palm to start the season. So it's, you know, when you look back at, at the whole totality of the season, Obviously, it's easy to look back and, and realize, but, you know, you definitely were on the value side there. Yeah, maybe it helps that I didn't really watch any regular season college basketball. <laughs> so I wasn't swayed by a recent form or the loss to Oklahoma State in the Big 12 tournament. But it was it was nice just to kind of try to zig where others were zagging and let the chips fall where they may. And, and it, when it works out, it feels pretty good. To your point, it doesn't happen every year. But if you're trying to play in a pool of 32 people and you can improve your odds from 1 in 32 to one in 20 that's all you need to come out ahead over time and and really enjoy it even more than you would just watching as a fan yeah just enter as many pools as you can when you can get an edge like that so you know <laughs> yeah can't wait for next year already looking forward to that <laughs> well there's one more big event to look back on uh major league baseball opening week we got it on time this season baseball season didn't start at the end of july so things generally seem to be moving in a positive direction. And I'm curious as to any takeaways you have on opening weekend across Major League Baseball. Well, it's nice seeing the Cubs, uh, my hometown team, with a, with a nice little start as we record this. But, you know, to that point, though, lots of overreacting early on, and we're used to it early early in a season like this. I mean, even some of my White Sox fan friends, you know, they were 
the sky was falling after that first loss, you know, the, uh, one, one out of 162, right? And, then, and the Angels have obviously nice start. Otani, I'm wishing I had uh, snagged some of that Otani. I think William Hill at 50 to 1 to win the MVP at the start of the year at some point. But even at 30 to 1, I wish I got him involved with that one because that's that number's long gone. But, you know, a lot of overreaction, as usual, in a baseball season. And, and that's where you can find some nice value. To, I know the big example with that is the Dodgers um, – was that last year? No, the year before, um, they had that really tough start to the season, and, and you were able to get like a nice price. I was able to get them ten to one just to win the NL. Um, I think it was like in it might have been like early June or late May, and then they, you know, things correct themselves, and they ended up making it to the World Series that year. But so it's a good opportunity to take advantage of that overreacting, and some of that overreacting I think is also um, just a big favorites maybe early on that that don't necessarily, you know, win their first game or two. And one stat I came across, I forget which show that I heard it on um, last week that really stuck out to me. And this could just be, and I don't like arbitrary endpoints like this, which I'm about to explain it, but it's it's just it stuck out to me. And since 2004, favorites of minus, between minus 125 and minus 199 in their first game of the season heading into this year were 112 and 44 straight up. That's plus 46 units. And when you really think about the reasoning behind that, and this is, you know, could be a potential system play moving on and, you know, going to the whole arbitrary endpoint thing, you know, that, that aside, I think it actually makes a little bit of sense when you think about it, because, you know, taking out those, those $2 and above favorites, you know, with those big, you know, th- those, you know, big name pitchers and those, those familiar names that you're aware of, obviously that's not part of that, of that example for a reason. Cause I think, you know, it's, I would never want to lay it on the first game of the year with uh, with an ace like that. You know, it's just probably a, a thing to avoid altogether. If anything, maybe look to play the underdogs there. But but I think it makes sense. You know, a team that's in that range, minus one twenty five to one ninety nine, they're they're favored for a reason. Uh, obviously, only favored. You know, to win fifty four to what is a quick math? What is that like fifty four percent to sixty six percent of the time? So they're not a huge favorite, but at the same time, they're you know, they're a favorite for a reason and maybe that that pitcher is that much better. And it's, they're coming into that with a bit more focus. They're not taking their opponent lightly. Not that anybody necessarily is in that first game back, but I, that really stuck out to me and something that I'm going to be looking to potentially get involved in um, uh, next year, moving forward, at least, you know, if the spots fit, you know, just with that, with that idea in mind, it could be a good system player. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that RJ Bell brought up that, that might or a very similar point on the dream preview last week. And I mean, as far as arbitrary endpoints go, 2004, hey, that's the year the Red Sox broke the curse. So, you know, yeah, Boston could, fans yeah. might just let it be known that that's the year that baseball began. So yeah. <laughs> maybe I heard, I heard that it was straight out of Vegas, but it was RJ Bell's other show. That's where I heard it. Yep. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, there, there could be something to it. Well, I love the analytical approach that you brought to your takeaways from opening week because I don't have too much to say a few games in, but. It's as much fun as I've had watching non-playoff baseball as I can recall. And I'm an Angel stand. If anybody is watching this video, they can see Angel Stadium behind me. The It's Anaheim Stadium back in the good days when they were the California Angels. But I've got that framed, you know, print of the stadium on my wall. So clearly a little biased here. But to see Shohei Otani unleashed, not even as an Angels fan, but kind of as a baseball fan overall. I mean, you even seem to enjoy it quite a bit. I think a lot of people did. It was great to see that first true glimpse into what he could be because it was his first time pitching and hitting in the same game this past Sunday night, Sunday night baseball on ESPN. Great platform for him to showcase, you know, both sides of the ball. I mean, the first inning, 
clocked it at 101 with his fastball and hit a 451-foot homer. For context, that was the fastest pitch by any starting pitcher this season. He later topped it in the fourth inning. And then in his first at-bat, he hit the hardest-hit homer by any batter this season with an exit velocity north of 115 miles per hour. So that was just bonkers right off the bat. And then we got a quick reminder, though, how fleeting this can be. There was that bizarre sequence in the fifth inning where he struck out the last batter he faced, and yet the play resulted in a drop third strike, not one but two runs scoring on a strikeout, and then Otani getting wiped out on a collision covering home plate. That might have been the worst strikeout of all time in baseball. <laughs> Fortunately, he was reported as being okay. I'm still catching my breath from everything, but even as we record this on Tuesday, he he pinched it last night. He dh today, so things are looking up for him. But a similar angle, getting away from my Angels bubble with, you know, how joyful baseball can be, but the fragility of it. Fernando Tatis Jr. Sunday hits a ball 465 feet. Um, to quote Rick Vaughn in Major League, I'm I'm still not sure it's landed yet, but <laughs> I, I think it actually went so far it fooled the cameraman. It almost left Petco Park. Right. And and then last night he dislocates his shoulder on a swing and miss. And now the rest of his season's in doubt. So we're hoping for the best, but it can be an emotional roller coaster. So I get what you're saying about a lot of people overreacting. Um, I'm just trying to react properly and, and enjoy everything and kind of empathize with the stuff that doesn't go so great. I, I think in the show notes, I'll have to include an, a link to those Otani and Tatis homers, as well as those fluky plays, just to kind of show how crazy this can get in such a short window. And, you know, we're back to having the highs and lows over the course of 162 games. But overall, I'm just happy to be along for the ride after getting shortchanged with that abbreviated season last year. I'll be going to Angels and Dodgers games and back-to-back weekends coming up soon. So, yeah, it's, it's not going to be a perfect season for any fan base, but I'm just glad that we're in store for a full season for the first time in a couple years. Yeah, well said. I know it's just great to have it back. And for me personally, it was my first time not at Wrigley Field for opening day since 2008, uh, just because I'm not in Chicago right now, and it's tough to get tickets, of course, too. And uh, So it didn't feel right to me there, just not being there physically, but putting on the game on TV and being able to watch it, you know, just – brought us back you know nothing beats opening day um, especially the way we had it this year so it's just good to have baseball back for all of us purists and it's nice having dime lines across the board as well now, that's like the industry yeah part. yeah yeah it's, it's great to see plenty of those popping up again and not to overly sugarcoat things I'll, I'll keep this quick um of course the nationals had their outbreak so i don't want to just say hey baseball's back everything's perfect um this is not a political podcast but People feel differently about the all-star game being removed from Atlanta. Um, Whatever people think of that, there are bigger issues in play other than just the simple joy of baseball being played. But that said, I I came across a quote um, for something I was looking at in a non-sports context, but it, it seemed like words to live by, especially with the state of baseball right now. And the quote was, is this perfect? No. Is this all going to hell? Nope. It's somewhere in between. So we can, you know, try to take the good with the bad and just everybody's going to process things how they will. But it's it's nice to have something to process versus where things did at this time last year. Yeah. I just have to embrace it. That's just like everything today. You know, just, it is what it is at this time. And it's, it's probably not going to be like this forever, obviously. So just if anything, just enjoy the times while we have them and and just enjoy, enjoy it for what it is, you know, because it's unique too. We're seeing some unique situations and potentially more betting opportunities on the betting board as well. 
Yes, yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Well, let's just pretend like there's not a looming labor dispute as soon as the World Series wraps up this year. <laughs> and on that note, we will move on. <laughs> Baseball's great, guys. Everything's everything's going well. It's never gonna <laughs> not be going well. Um, yeah, we can we can also talk some betting legalization. It's impossible to have you on without touching on that. And there's plenty of news to get to in Illinois. But but first off, today, um, as we were getting ready to record, some weird news was coming out of New York. I don't think either of us has had time to fully catch up on it, so I won't drill you on all the details, but it sounds like mobile betting's coming to New York, but it could be quite convoluted. What do you have a feel for in terms of what's going on and and what you're going to need to gather as you do some research to really form an opinion on the state of mobile betting in New York? Yeah, I mean, this we had some news drop and, uh, today as we're recording this, and I know this has been an, on, an ongoing issue as New York looks to finalize its budget. Um, Cuomo looks like he's getting his way, Governor Cuomo, on this. And it's a situation where, I mean, he's looking to, to it's not going to be a strict you know, lottery model, but anytime you get the lottery involved in sports betting or something similar to that, uh, we've seen from other states, as an example, uh, just not good things happen, I guess, to, to use the phrase. But basically, they're going to be you know, making it difficult to get uh, to get a license in New York, and there's going to be a very select few that benefit from this, and the betters and the taxpayers of New York are going to suffer as a result because when you uh, don't have a, a market that that's competitive in terms of who's getting the the licenses, and and then in turn offering a competitive product to consumers, they're going to bring their their business elsewhere. And in New York's case, it's going to be people still continuing to cross state lines into into New Jersey. Maybe not your recreational better, but a lot of people. Are, are going to do that. And there's a lot of smart betters out there that have, you know, New Jersey's been live for almost three years now and, and people have figured this out. And when you have a robust market right next door uh, that's offering competitive alliance and competitive pricing, people are going to bet there and New York's going to lose out as a result. They're, they're not going to take in as much state revenue, certainly not as much as, as what's, I've seen some of their figures that they're counting on uh, for their budget. And it's way off from, from what they're going to be uh, looking to offer most likely here. So, it's definitely not a win. I mean, from the standpoint of having mobile betting in New York, it's a win, but I feel like they're going to have to learn the hard way uh, in the Empire State, just like some other states have uh, in terms of getting this right the first time. And and it's just ironic because they have the perfect example right next door to them, a, a state that's figured this out early on by offering you know, less encumbrances to operators and, and people looking, you know, entities looking to enter the space. And when you make it more difficult and you put more restrictions on there, you're just essentially restricting the market. And the market's going to flourish elsewhere, including corner bookies, offshore. People are going to keep betting there if the prices are better. So that's that's the the big picture view. But we'll see how New York plays out uh, as this continues to unfold. Yeah, it feels so silly to be in this spot right now. It's as if, you know, we were kind of talking about this when we saw the news come out right as we were about to record. But it's as if New Jersey has given New York the answers to the test. And then <laughs> New York sits down in front of a Scantron and just starts snaking <laughs> down the board. It's like, you have the answer. You don't need to guess or make a random game out of it. You you have a blueprint ready to go. It's tried and true. And sounds like they've got other ideas, but they're not the only one puzzling betters because <laughs> your home state, Illinois, has also been in the news recently. They lifted their mobile registration permissions on Sunday. So if you want to bet on a phone in Illinois, you've got to sign up first in person these days. And that seems like it could really stunt the state's growth with betting, which was moving in a really strong direction. It could push a lot more betters offshore. Am I missing anything? Does the state have a point of view that makes any sense on this? Or, or how are you seeing this with current state of betting in Illinois? 
It's, it's just classic Illinois politics being played out on a, on a grand scale right now. Um, essentially, the long and the short of it is, and just to loop people in here, um, basically, Illinois launched sports betting on March 9th of last year. A week later, on March 16th, was the day all, all casinos shut down effectively. But the way the Illinois law is written is for the first uh, year and a half after the first master license goes out, which went out in June of last year. So beginning in June of last year, a year and a half would have to pass before the in-person registration requirement was lifted. So people can then go register from the comfort of their couch uh, for, for any sports betting app. But the pandemic changed that last year because no one could go into a casino to bet. Um, there was, you know, obviously people had to bet somehow. So Governor Pritzker in Illinois, he, he instituted his executive order uh, lifting that in-person registration requirement. And he continually um, renewed that executive order. There was a brief period back in July where he didn't and people freaked out over that because it served to benefit one customer in particular. And it's right now that basically last week, uh, at the end of last week, he decided not to extend it uh, beginning on this Sunday. So as of right now, as of this Sunday, um, you have to once again, go in and register in person. And this is all designed to benefit or at least squeeze out so benefit Bet Rivers, Rivers Casino, and squeeze out uh, the obvious, you know, big established names, namely DraftKings and FanDuel. The idea behind putting this in-person registration requirement in the law in the first place, and to be clear, I vehemently disagreed with this uh, to the point where I even wrote in the public comment period to the legislators to try and get any more attention to this issue as possible. Because again, looking at other states who have figured this out. Um, states that have in-person registration. I mean, Iowa, right next door, another example of a of a neighbor, didn't see the robust numbers until they, and they finally just lifted that requirement. Their time period um, was up in January of this year. And you could see it in their numbers after they, uh, after they lifted that requirement, after that played out. But anyway, Illinois didn't get this right. They wanted to essentially um, appease the established casino brands who were claiming that they were operating at such a disadvantage if we were just to not have this requirement because FanDuel and DraftKings had such an advantage for offering their fantasy sports product uh, for several years prior. And they had those existing customer bases to immediately gobble up 80 or 90% of the market, which is what we saw them do in New Jersey. Um, and, and I'm sure that would have happened. Uh, but at the same time, it was a question mark whether or not FanDuel and DraftKings were operating um, illegally this whole time in, in terms of fantasy sports. And the attorney general in Illinois wrote a, a legal opinion several years back uh, saying that, that DraftKings and FanDuel were not operating legally, offering their fantasy sports product. They continued to offer it anyway. There was no challenge uh, to enforce that uh, legal opinion. So they continued to do it. And actually just last year, the Illinois Supreme Court did rule on that and, and they deemed that FanDuel and DraftKings were operating legally the whole time. So DraftKings and FanDuel were saying, hey, we were not doing anything wrong. It's not our fault for offering our product and getting all these customers. And now we're going to suffer as a result of this in-person registration requirement because we don't have a, a, a land-based partnership in Illinois. And it was strictly serving it. There's no question about it. Uh, Rivers Casino, which is the casino closest to downtown Chicago where Bet Rivers operates, um, it was going to serve to benefit them right away. And it, and it did last year. And it still does. I and mean, I think the last time I've heard, they still have about a one-third market share roughly. Uh, along with DraftKings and FanDuel. So that's who it's going to benefit. It's going to hurt, um, of course, those established brands, uh, FanDuel, DraftKings. Um, it's not going to hurt points bet as much because um, 
my Chicago listeners would know they're they're actually they're partnered with the racetrack that's right by the city, and they have a few off-track betting locations where you can go register. So points bet shouldn't suffer as much. Barstool will suffer because Barstool is partnered with the the Hollywood casinos out in the western suburbs. So you'd have to make a trek out there uh, to register. And of course, if you're downstate and you want to register for Barstool, if you're living in East St. Louis, you got to drive all the way up, and vice versa for all the Chicago people that have to travel all the way down. So it's it's really going to end up hurting. Uh, those new books that just launch and any any books that are that are looking to launch in Illinois soon. I know the score is looking to launch soon, but MGM as well. So that, it's going to hurt them on the short term. It's going to hurt betters and taxpayers too, because we're going to see those numbers drop. Um, you'll see a play out. It's not going to take a rocket scientist to figure this one out. And fortunately, the good news is it's not going to last uh, forever. This is all going to be lifted in January once that year and a half tolls. So uh, it's not going to be forever, but it's there will be suffering on the on the short term in this football season, you know, if you're not registered, unless something changes, you're going to have to go in person. Wow. There's a lot to digest there. Thank you for such a good overview. I I was getting pretty worked up until you said Barstool is also going to suffer. And then, then I lost the urge to shed a tear for a moment. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, There's, there's some silver linings. (laughs) Yeah. But I I like the perspective of, you know, I, I guess it's the story of the last year. Plus there will be some suffering, but it's not forever. So yep. there's yeah. there's something to look forward to. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. It's just a little frustrating that there is still that tunnel of the next, what, eight months to get through before mm-hmm. common sense can once again prevail in Illinois. Mm-hmm. But one thing I'd like to touch on where things aren't as messy as New York and Illinois would be the state of Play Up US. I know that you've been doing all kinds of work there and would love it if you could give us a quick update on where PlayUp is currently live and, and anything that might be in the works. Yeah, no, I appreciate that a lot. Um, yeah, PlayUp, we have some very exciting things in the works right now. We launched our sports betting product in Colorado last last March. Join the fray there. Talk about states who have it figured out. Uh, they're on the short list uh, in terms of offering a robust market. And there's there's more operators in the state of Colorado than uh, than anywhere else. So we we are one of those operators. We launched in March, so I encourage anybody living out in the Rocky Mountain state to give us a try. And uh, New New Jersey's next. Speaking of other markets that have figured it out, we are working to launch in New Jersey uh, very soon. Um, obviously, a lot goes into that to going live, but we're you know, I don't have an exact timetable to give you, but as soon as possible, very definitely on the short term. So uh, if you're out in New Jersey, definitely keep us on your radar there. But on top of that, we're looking to enter into into new states. Um, won't name the exact state's names quite yet, but um, we will be uh, launching in other states as well later this year just for sports betting. And then on top of that, we're going to be offering our, our iGaming or iCasino to some people and horse racing product as well. So there's a lot coming your way from PlayUp. Uh, definitely keep us on your radar this year because we're, we're moving very fast to to offer our product, but also shake up the market. I have a lot of ideas on how to how to uh, change the status quo and actually, you know, the direction of, of gaming here in the United States uh, as this decade plays out, because we're still in the infancy stages of everything. And, and I think that there's definitely a space to be had um, for, for entities or anybody in, in the space to, to really shake up uh, the status quo and how things look, you know, because we, there's, there's no, not many people were doing this. I mean, even three years ago, only one state was offering this stuff. So um, when it comes to sports betting. So we're still in the early days. There's a lot of, uh, of exciting things ahead, no doubt. So I'm very excited to be a part of it. Yeah, music to betters ears. And I'm hoping that New York's loss could be your gain with New Jersey, hopefully coming into the fold soon. 
because even last week's guest, Connor Riley, lives in New York and he spoke about parking his car in the Bronx on Sunday mornings before football games, walking across the George Washington Bridge, placing his bets, walking back. And, and he made the funny note. He's like, Matt, I'm not the only guy doing it. So no. I know that for New Jersey betters, this could be, you know, a great introduction, having play up coming into the, you know, the list of operators available. But even for New Yorkers, if they're not thrilled with what's going on there right now, uh, if, if they're close enough to New Jersey, a lot of New Yorkers could benefit from that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I know, I know a lot of people that make that trip, you know, after work in New York, you're working in Manhattan, you just get on a train, get your phone up as soon as you just you don't even get out of the train. Once you cross those state lines, you're able to get your bets in and then you ride right back in. Just part of some people's daily and weekly process. Yeah, it seems a little obsolete, but at the same time, I, I think it's it's nice that some people who really want to get down can put in the hustle and take advantage of some better options just by crossing state lines. Yep. So, Mike, I know we're, we're coming up on an hour. Of course we are, because I told you we, this would probably be a, a tight 20 to 25 minutes, and, and here we are. So to respect your time as much as possible, despite how I've already violated it by going this no, long. No, no, we can, we can go forever. <laughs> we can get into a rapid fire round to wrap things up. Uh, first things first, I, I guess you already said that John Rahm is the horse you're riding for the Masters. So if we exclude him and I ask you, who wins the Masters? Who else would you say has a realistic shot? Xander Shoffley, especially I mean, if you can get 25 mm. to 1 right now, that's a guy I'm targeting. Uh, he just brings the whole package in this tournament. He's a guy who should be, he's not in the top, top tier, obviously, of course, but he's right there in terms of your short list of golfers who who have everything that you're looking for in a Masters winner. Uh, and he, he brings the pedigree. He's, he's been in the conversation on so many of these majors. So I feel like it's just a matter of time before he breaks through. So that's who I would, uh, that's who I would go with. And a, a guy further down the board, Matthew Fitzpatrick, although he's seen a lot of sharp action coming on him. I think he was, he's sitting as high as like 70, 80 to one at one point. I think he's down to like 50 to one, 55 to one right now, but he's a guy who I think can uh, at least contend in the end, might be a little too young to break through, but you know, sprinkle a little top five, top 10 as well. Yeah, I like it. A couple more names that are a little bit farther down the board to make the Masters weekend more interesting. And another who wins question coming your way. We talked some baseball. So who do you have winning the World Series this year? Oh, man. Um, you know what? I mean, it's, it's I can go chalk and say the Dodgers, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and actually go with the Mets because I, you know, the Mets... Mm -hmm. They have the Degrom factor. I mean, it's it's his Cy Young to lose. Uh, feels like any given year, and I'm I'm really saying this on the fly because I, you know, I, I hate going chalk on this, but I think the Mets could just be the team. It just could be their year. They have the guy. Um, they have the bats now this year too. And uh, yeah, I'll go with the Mets. Yeah, that would be fun to see. I, I think there are a lot of Mets fans I know born right after the last time they won the World Series, and they're overdue to get that experience. And it would not be. The worst thing if if they were the team to do it this year. So I, I'll be happy if you're right on that note. And one more question as we wrap things up. What do you think would be the next state to get it right when it comes to legalization? We know that New York and Illinois are probably not on that list, but when we're thinking mobile registration, healthy competition, you had some good things to say about New Jersey and Colorado. Are there any other states that seem like they're on the cusp of really getting this right? Great question. I don't know if there is one that really is going to be getting this. Maryland's an interesting one to pay attention to because Maryland is looking to do some pretty unique things in terms of there's, there being potentially no cap 
on the amount of licenses that can go out. And there's also some interesting developments there in terms of um, prioritizing licenses for um, minority-owned um, operators or minority-owned companies, which is an interesting way to, I know that they did something similar with their, their uh, marijuana laws in Maryland a few years ago in terms of who can get uh, those licenses as well, at least the, um, the growing licenses. I don't know. I'm, I'm not as smart on, on that front, but like Maryland is looking to go a very unique route. So it's one to pay attention to, but in terms of States that, you know, should be getting it right and, and take a, a page off Colorado and New Jersey's book and follow those almost completely. There's not many out there. Obviously Indiana was, was pretty close, but uh, not many out there, unfortunately. Got it. Okay. Uh, I will not hold my breath out here in California. <laughs> no, unfortunately. Yeah, that's okay. Fortunately, <laughs> Vegas is not too far away. So we'll just keep taking advantage of that when the opportunity presents itself. Well, Mike, I want to thank you for your time. It's always a blast to have you on the show. It was great to have this kind of catch-all conversation with so much happening in the sports world right now and with some pretty fresh legalization news. So if listeners want more of that, I highly encourage following Mike at Doggy Juice on Twitter and Instagram. Listen to the Doggy Juice podcast. And and yeah, thank you for the synopsis of what's going on at Play Up US. That's just going to be so cool to see New Jersey come into the fold and, and hopefully many more states to come in the not too distant future. Yeah, no, I'm excited to share all that news with you soon enough. So next time I come out, I'll, I'll be sharing those other states with you very shortly. I'll give a little hint that uh, if you, you can look towards the Midwest potentially. So. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. Um, I had a recent, yeah, a recent guest I mentioned, Ed Fang. He lives in Ann Arbor. So yeah. is that, is that something that he might want to keep an eye out for? Um, no, no, not, not Michigan. Okay. But Michigan I mean, okay. talk about interesting markets to pay attention to as well. Michigan is definitely one of them. So cool. Okay. I'll take you off the hot seat for now. I know from a, a legal standpoint, you can't divulge too much, but we'll get it again soon. And, and for now, thanks again for your time, whether it's Chicago, LA, Vegas, anywhere else. I cannot wait until the next time we're sharing a beer, watching a game in person again. So cheers to you, Mike. Thanks again. Thanks again for bringing me on, Matt. It's always a pleasure. Always here whenever you want to bring me back on. It's props and ops. Big fan of what you're doing. So keep up the great work. Goodbye. Thanks again to Mike for joining the show. If you like what he had to say, make sure to check out the Doggy Juice podcast, and you can follow his work on the podcast on Twitter and Instagram, at Doggy Juice. You can also keep an eye out for good things to come from PlayUp US in the not-too-distant future. And if you found any value in this episode, please share it with a friend who could benefit as well. I'd also appreciate it if you could take a quick moment to follow or subscribe to Props and Hops wherever you get your podcasts. And friendly reminder, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, a quick rating and review would also be incredibly helpful. I'd also love to keep the conversation going, so feel free to connect with me anytime on Twitter, at mlandis18, and on Instagram, at propsandhops. One last housekeeping item, if you'd be interested in a write-up on the highlights from my conversation with Mike, you'll be able to find that over at dimers.com, where you'll also be able to find a rundown on some of the best sportsbooks and promo codes in states where wagering is legal, and I've included a link to those sportsbooks and promo codes in the show notes of this episode. Alright, that'll do it for this week's episode of Props and Hops. Thanks for listening, enjoy the Masters and everything else going on in the wide world of sports. I'll talk to you next week, and until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well.